Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep what has been written in it, for the time is near. This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Welcome back, you brave souls who stuck with me after the intro episode. We are diving into chapter one of Revelation this week on the backdrop. Before we get into what is functionally John's introduction and kind of scene setting chapter, a couple of logistical thoughts. First, I would suggest having read the relevant chapters, chapter one in this case, before listening to these podcasts. But I am, when possible, when it's not too long, going to read the passages on the podcast as well before we start working through the important issues and symbols and ideas and such. These are dense and symbolic enough visions that it's probably a good thing to have a couple passes of the words in your head as we talk through them. When I do read the passages, I will be using the translation by the scholar Brian Blunt, who you will be familiar with if you listen to our Following Their Lead series, where we listen to the voices of black theologians. I think his translation is both very readable and understandable, and is different enough to help us see this book through new eyes, which I hope will help us in gaining an understanding of what John is doing in the book. Other scholars I will be referring to regularly and whose commentaries I am relying on as I study for these and put these together include Craig Kester, who wrote a massive and very academic commentary, N.T. Wright, whose Revelation for Everyone commentary is very readable, very accessible, and then Brian Blunt, Ben Witherington III, and Joseph Mangina, whose commentaries are all kind of somewhere in between those two extremes. So far in my research, I have found Blunt's to be the most interesting and helpful of those five, but the others are good as well. And if you're interested in or need help finding any of those for yourself, uh, just, just send us an email, pomonavalleychurch at gmail.com, and we'll try and help you out. You can also send in questions that come up for you along the way in these podcasts, and I'll add maybe a Q&A episode if or when enough questions come in uh, to make that worthwhile. Last thing, if you have not listened to the intro episode, I would suggest you do so. Part of the hope with it was that it would provide a place to talk through some recurring themes once that I can refer back to rather than re-talking through them each time that they show up. Things like emperor worship, persecution, certain symbols, and so on. So I would listen to that one first before jumping into this one, if at all possible. Okay, with all that said, let's get started. Who's excited? (laughs) Don't worry, chapter one doesn't get too weird. So this is Brian Blunt's translation of the first verses of Revelation chapter one. This is the revelation proclaimed by Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to reveal to his servants what must happen soon. He made it known by sending his messenger to his servant John, who witnessed to all that he saw, the word of God, which is the witness proclaimed by Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep what has been written in it, for the time is near. John is setting the stage in this first chapter by, in part, establishing the authority of what he has to say. This is a confrontational book. That is, as we talked about last time and we'll continue to see in the episodes to come, it's asking Christians to do something hard and sacrificial, which might put them in social, economic, and even physical danger. John wants to be perfectly clear. This is not just me asking you to do something. This is the word of Jesus himself. 
and he is doing it in a way that would be perfectly recognizable to the Jewish members of his audience. The way he sets up the authority of his message is very similar to the way the Old Testament prophets set up the authority of their own messages. John sees himself as a prophet in the same line as Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the rest. And he sees himself having a very similar message to the message that you would find in those writings. Trust God, not idols. Now, I want to start by looking at a few important words that come up in these first three verses. First, this book is, from the very first word of the original Greek, described as a revelation, a vision of hidden but very real reality. John is, again, like the prophets of old, saying, it it seems like one thing is true about the world and who has power, but I'm going to show you what's actually true behind the scenes, so to speak. As we said in our intro episode, this is done in symbolic and figurative language because that's the only language that could possibly adequately communicate these hidden realities. Words about God are always figurative because God is beyond the confines of our language. And that's especially true in a book of prophetic visions like this one. What's kind of ironic about that is that many people over the years, when reading this book, have insisted on treating it as more literal than many other books. Jesus said to sell all your possessions and come follow me, to use one obvious example that very few people take literally even though there is much more reason to take that literally than the visions in Revelation. As one of the scholars I read put it, it's necessary to read this book as much with the imagination as with the logic, to take it on its own figurative, metaphorical, symbolic, imagery-rich terms, rather than trying to force it to be something it's not. John tells us that from literally the very first word. His vitally important message about what is true that was given to him by Jesus himself, is communicated through visions, metaphor. Second, this message is being revealed to God's servants. This word is literally slaves, and you may have seen it translated as such in some Bible translations. There's kind of pros and cons to using one word or the other. The main problem is that the word slave has a couple millennia of baggage that comes with it, (laughs) which probably clouds John's meaning more than it clarifies John's meaning. Slave was probably a more accurate word to describe what John is getting at in the ancient Roman context than it is in the contemporary American context, in other words. And so servant might help us understand a bit better what John is getting at. At the same time, part of John's point here is that his readers have a choice in front of them. They can serve Jesus or they can serve Caesar. There isn't really a third way. Caesar acquires his slaves through wealth, power, and violence. God acquires slaves through sacrificial love. And paradoxically, God's servants are actually free, free from the idols of wealth, power, and violence and the demands those idols put upon them. Okay, third word, John says that he witnessed all this. Witness is a very common word in Revelation. It appears again and again. John's hope is that the people he is writing to will be faithful witnesses to Jesus in the face of potentially serious consequences, just as Jesus was a faithful witness in the face of his own serious consequences. That is perhaps the main message of the book. Since Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, be faithful witnesses to the truth about Jesus instead of fearing Rome. And then fourth word, 
and it kind of goes along with the phrase too. John says that all this is going to happen soon and that the time is near. The soonness, immediacy of John's message and visions is another theme that shows up regularly in the book. Some scholars have chalked this up to, well, John thought the world was about to end any day now, but he was wrong because here we are 2,000 years later. But some of the scholars I've read have a bit of a different perspective, that when John says the time is near, that is like so much of the book, maybe not literal, in the sense that the clock is about to tick over into the end of the world. Visionary time and chronological time do not line up in that way. Instead, the time is near in the sense that this message and these visions are of immediate relevance. This is not a back burner issue that John is talking about, but rather one that is pressing in on how we make decisions in the here and now. These visions should shape our perspective in this present time. One other scholar also made the point that throughout the New Testament, the writers seem to be of the opinion that a new age has come, like in the present, here now. We're reading it wrong to think that the age to come is in the future when the world ends. And as we will see at the end of Revelation, the end of the world is kind of the wrong way to think about things too. But anyhow, the age to come, however we define that, is here because Jesus has died and been resurrected. The resurrection is the marker of the new creation breaking into the world. Death and evil's power has been broken. And so the time is near because the age to come is here already. John's point is the same that Paul makes regularly. You should live a certain way not to earn entry into the future age to come, but rather because you are already living in the age to come. So now act like it. (laughs) Okay, so now let's move on to verses four through eight. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming, and from the seven spirits who are before God's throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, who is the ruler over the kings of the earth, to the one who loves us and liberated us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God, who is his father, to him be the glory and the power forever. Amen. Indeed, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn for him. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. In this section, we see who this book is addressed to, the seven churches in Asia, which we talked about in the intro pod. And we begin to see three things that show up all the time in this book and are crucial to our understanding of it. And they kind of often interweave with each other. First, we see John's use of symbolic language. Seven churches actually means, as we said last time, the whole church in Asia. The seven spirits before God's throne. Again, this is not a literal seven separate spirits that are floating around or something like that. We don't need to get into some sort of weird angelology of how many angels there are and where they are and which ones do what functions and all that. If John wanted us to care about all that, he would have spelled it out in more detail, but he didn't. Instead, this should be understood as the whole spirit of God, the spirit of God, which is watching over all the earth. It's probably a reference to Zechariah four, where Zechariah has a vision of God's throne room and of seven spirits. And in Zechariah four, 10, the vision is explained to the prophet in this way. 
These seven are the eyes of Yahweh, which range throughout the whole earth. There are seven spirits because Yahweh sees throughout the whole earth. God is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, as we might put it. God also uses the symbols of I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning, the Alpha, of all things as creator of the earth, and the end, the Omega, of all things in the sense of ensuring that all creation arrives at its proper end point. So that's the first thing, symbolic language. The second thing we see here, along with that symbolic language, is that there are biblical allusions everywhere. Hundreds of them, like well over 500 of them in the book as a whole. And they are usually not direct quotations. Rather, they're enough of an allusion to the ideas that it can't be an accident. The above seven spirits, for example, that does not come close to quoting Zechariah 4, but it's clearly alluding back to that earlier vision of God's throne room. John wants his readers to think back to what Zechariah had to say. The Alpha and Omega verse continues that God is the one who is, who was, and who is coming, which is an allusion back to God's self-identification as Yahweh in the Exodus story. John wants his readers again to think back to the Exodus story in order to remember that just as God then showed God's power over Pharaoh and the empire of Egypt, even so now, John's readers should expect God to show power over Caesar and the empire of Rome. And this actually highlights the third thing that shows up in this section and will be important throughout the book. John is constantly undermining the claims of Rome and the emperor. Jesus, in verse 5, is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Well, if you asked your standard Roman who was the ruler over the kings of the earth, there was an obvious answer to that question, the emperor. Clearly, look at all the kings who bow down before him and offer their, their crowns to him, to borrow an image that will show up in future chapters. John is, is constantly poking at the ideology and the claims of Rome, saying, oh, you think Caesar is impressive? Check God out. Oh, you think Rome is powerful? Let me tell you about Jesus. John is writing in the 90s AD, and in 90 AD, the first example of Rome being described as an eternal empire, which would have glory and power forever, appeared. This is common knowledge that is kind of surrounding the Christian community at the end of the first century, and John is wanting his readers to see the truth that Rome, despite all its claims, is but a pathetic imitation of the true power and glory and majesty of the eternal God, Yahweh. And I'm going to keep using Yahweh to name God as we go through these episodes because it's important to keep reminding ourselves of John's point. Yahweh is God, not Rome, not Caesar. John's point is not that there is a God that you should worship instead of no God, but rather that Yahweh is the God you should worship and not these other options. Putting these three things together, the symbolism, the Old Testament allusions, and the poking at Roman ideology, Brian Blunt makes this point. He says, interestingly, John characterizes the churches in verse 12, 13, and 20 as seven lampstands. It does not take much imagination to theorize that the churches, lampstands, are powered by the force of God's spirit, flames. But if God uses God's power, spirit, to contest Roman control 
of human history. And God also uses God's power to empower the churches to whom John is writing. Then it must also be the case that John's churches will form one of the principal mechanisms through which God will win the fight against Rome. This Holy Spirit then is very much a political spirit. Okay, then two more Old Testament allusions in this section of chapter one. Verse five is a reference to Psalm 89, what is often called a messianic psalm, because it's looking forward to the establishment of an eternal kingdom under a descendant of King David, the the Messiah. Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, who is the ruler over the kings of the earth. And if you were to turn to Psalm 89, verse 24 says, my faithfulness and steadfast love will be with him. And then verse 27 says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. And then verse 29 gets at some of the things that take place later in the passage of Revelation we just read. I will establish his line forever and his throne as long as the heavens endure. Jesus, John is saying, is this king Yahweh promised in Psalm 89, in contrast to the lies Rome wants you to believe. And then in verse 7, there's another great example of how John doesn't usually quote the Old Testament. He alludes to it. And sometimes, as in verse 7, he alludes to it by mixing several visions or ideas or symbols together into one. So verse 7 of Revelation 1, again, says, Indeed, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn for him. Amen. The first part, the coming on the clouds, is certainly a reference to Daniel 7, verse 13, when a human figure comes up to the throne room of God and is given power over the earth. Daniel writes this, As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being. Now, quick side note, this phrase, human being, is literally son of man in Hebrew. And you see Jesus using the same phrase of himself in the Gospels referencing this verse, Daniel 7, 13. Brian Blunt uses the alternative child of humanity instead of son of man. I kind of like that and we'll use it moving forward because the figure's maleness is not the point. His humanness is. And nowadays, in our contemporary context, son of man kind of points us more towards the gender rather than the humanity. So anyhow, I saw one like a child of humanity, coming with the clouds of heaven, okay, just like Revelation 1-7, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So we see the clouds of heaven idea and also the All the nations of the earth are going to respond to this Jesus in some way. But the rest of verse 7 is not from Daniel. Instead, that comes again from Zechariah. This time, chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. At the end of a chapter where Zechariah is looking forward to the future victory that God will give to Israel over her enemies. And we read this. And I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that... When they look on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo, by the way, will show up again in this book. In Hebrew, the hill of Megiddo would be Har Megiddon, which is modified to Armageddon in English. But we aren't there yet. Here, John is making the point by smushing these two references together that Jesus is the one Yahweh has given all power to over the earth in contrast to Caesar once again, and that all the nations will come to recognize that the one they killed, this same Jesus, is now, paradoxically, the king above all kings, the one who truly deserves the worship they have been directing towards Rome and their other idols. And then, finally for today, let's look at the rest of chapter 1. So this is how Blunt translates chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and colleague, in the persecution and kingdom and nonviolent resistance in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God, which is the testimony proclaimed by Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a foreboding voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a scroll and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and one like a child of humanity was in the midst of the lampstands wearing a long robe and a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The white hair on his head was as white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like bronze as refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance shone as the sun in its full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he put his right hand on me, saying, Stop being afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but indeed, I am alive forever, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Therefore, write what you saw, what is, and what is about to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is a vision of Jesus, and again, it calls to mind Daniel 7, although it blends two figures in that vision of Daniel's. In Daniel, the one like a child of humanity comes up to the throne room of Yahweh, the ancient one or ancient of days in some translations, and is given power over the earth. And listen to how the ancient one is described by Daniel. As I watched, thrones were set in place and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Now, if you were paying attention, and since you're listening to this at all, I'm sure you were, John just described Jesus using the language Daniel used to describe Yahweh. For John, Jesus is both figures from Daniel 7, the child of humanity who's given power over the earth and the ancient one who gives that power. Jesus is king and God. You know, like Caesar wants to pretend he is. Brian Blunt makes the extremely interesting point also that the hair of Jesus 
and the hair of the ancient one in Daniel is described as being like white wool. Usually I have heard the color highlighted in that description. It's like wool in that it is white. Blunt, however, reminds us that there would have been people known to John and Daniel who had hair more the texture of wool. Those people would have been dark-skinned Africans, which is not anything I'd ever considered before and is a very interesting way and thought-provoking way to describe Jesus. In this vision of Jesus, John is intending to inspire awe in his listeners, awe at the overwhelming splendor and majesty and glory and power of this figure. And so these images, again, aren't meant to be literal, as if Jesus actually dresses this way or actually has a sword coming out of his mouth. These are visions meant to communicate a deeper truth than the surface level image of fire and bronze and swords itself. That's what figurative language is for, after all, to communicate a deeper truth than the image itself. John's point is that God is everything Caesar aspires to be. Jesus is so much more deserving of your allegiance than this pathetic imitation who claims to have power. So choose Jesus. Now, let's talk about a few of the symbols that show up in this part of chapter one. First, John again uses seven lampstands to represent the seven churches. This is quite possibly a reference to Jesus's words about his followers and their witness in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus describes them as being like a lamp that shouldn't be hidden under a basket. The churches, in the same way, are to be faithful witnesses to Jesus, proudly displayed like a lamp on a stand. As the quotation from Blunt I read earlier said, the fire of these lamps before God is probably related to the seven spirits before God, as if God's spirit is the fire animating these churches. One of the interesting things in these visions is that they shift Different things are described as standing in the same places. So the lampstands and the seven spirits are both described as in the same spot. And then Jesus is in the midst of those things. And sometimes the same things show up in different places and different ways. So the seven spirits that are before the throne of God now are seven stars in Jesus's right hand, for example. And this again highlights the fact that John isn't giving us a rundown of the contents of a room. <laughs> These are living images shifting and moving, changing shape to highlight different facets of meaning. Kind of like one of those pictures that changes as you walk by and shift your perspective. Okay, next, the symbol of the sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. This is certainly a reference to the word of Jesus, which Hebrews 4.12 also describes as a sharp two-edged sword. Interestingly, as Blunt points out, this clearly metaphorical sword is the only weapon mentioned in the battles that are to come in the book, which begs the question, how are we to read the violence and bloodshed that's in this book? Because if it's not a literal sword, and it's certainly not, but instead is the word of Jesus, then the battles in which Jesus wields his sword aren't battles resulting in literal carnage and bloodshed. They are battles in which Jesus conquers with a word, just as in creation, Yahweh created with a word. Jesus like Yahweh, speaks and things happen. His power does not come from violence. Yahweh did not need to slay cosmic beasts or carve up the body of a defeated God in order to create the world. He spoke. Jesus will not need to violently kill his enemies. He will speak. But we'll dive deeper into that when we get to the battle parts of the visions that are to come. 
And then finally, a few details in this passage that contribute to us understanding John's main point in all of this. First, you might have caught that in verse 9, Blunt uses the phrase nonviolent resistance, and that might have seemed out of place to you. This is the idea that is often translated endurance in English Bibles. Blunt's point is that endurance is far too passive a word for what John is advocating for. As Blunt puts it, John is not asking his followers simply to endure the persecution that comes their way. He instead is championing an active response of faith that resists both the belief in the lordship of Rome and the hostile practices Rome wields to propagandize that belief. Blunt's point is that John is asking his readers not to passively put up with what is coming to them. That is, in fact, what they have been doing, kind of just going with the flow of the empire so as not to attract hostile attention to themselves. And instead, they are to, in effect, tell on themselves, to declare, no, we aren't going to worship these idols anymore. Our allegiance is to the true King Jesus, not this false pretender Caesar. They are to, as Blunt puts it, nonviolently resist the power of the empire. This will arouse the hostility of those around them in all likelihood for the reasons we got into in the introduction episode when we talked about the worship of Rome and the emperor in the province of Asia. If the people take John's advice, advice, they will be potentially ostracized, potentially exiled like John was, potentially killed. John knows all this, which is why Jesus is described as having the keys to death and Hades and being the firstborn of the dead. I'm going to quote Blunt once again here. Rome's greatest power is its ability to consign Christ believers to death. John mitigates that power with his declaration made in the vision by Christ himself that Christ has the keys that will release persons from death into eternal life. The keys to Hades also, kind of interestingly, would have called to mind another popular goddess in that region of Asia that John is writing to, Hecate, who was also associated with visions and revelation oracles, appropriately enough. And John is telling people that Jesus is greater than Hecate. He actually has the key to Hades, and his visions are true, in contrast to what you would find from Hecate herself. And since Jesus has the keys to death, he will free from death those who have lost their lives because of their faithful witness. He will be faithful to us when we are faithful to him. John is setting up in this first chapter what will be true throughout the book. Whatever Rome, Caesar, the gods and goddesses of the surrounding culture, whatever they claim to be, Jesus truly is. The revelation that John is bringing is, in its most basic form, that. The reality that seems to be true on the surface is that Rome has the power of life and death that the emperor is the benefactor of the whole earth, the king over all kings who deserves honor and glory and allegiance. So we should just go along with that. But, John is saying, when the surface layer is peeled back, the apocalyptic truth is revealed, that Jesus is God, the true king, the true power, the true life giver, the true peace bringer, the true benefactor, the one who truly deserves honor and glory, and allegiance. So live according to that reality, no matter the cost, because Jesus will faithfully vindicate and restore to life those who have sacrificed for the sake of being a faithful witness. And that is as true today 
as it was then, which is why we are doing this series going through the book of Revelation. I hope this first chapter was clear and helpful. And again, if you have questions, send us an email. I'll do my best to address those in future episodes. Thanks for joining me. And I hope you will <clears throat> endure to the end of this podcast series with me. Next time, we'll be looking at chapters two and three, the letters to the churches. So read ahead for that. And I will see you then. Bye. Bye.